I mean, we can never imagine a day when, when the Republicans would be against increasing defense spending. That seemed to be like, you know, like number one thing on the on the list uh, when, when you get sworn in is you need to favor increasing defense spending. From DOD to Congress and from the White House to Wall Street, the NatSec Need to Know podcast, an unrehearsed podcast presenting insightful discussion and forecasts of the major national security and defense news of the day. On this episode, we've got a reporter's roundtable featuring Marjorie Sensor of Defense News, Aaron Mehta of Breaking Defense, and Marcus Weisgerber of Defense One. Then we'll turn to a focused discussion on the fiscal 24 budget and its various scenarios and outcomes with Major General Arnold Punaro from the Punaro Group. Joining me is a murderer's row of experienced Washington editors and reporters. They've each covered Washington and the Pentagon for years and are as well-sourced as anyone. Thank you all for joining. Let's get after it. All right, issue one. We've had a short slowdown in the headlines for Thanksgiving and a busy few weeks with fighting in Ukraine and Gaza, legislative purgatory in Congress, and a swirl of other defense policy issues. Issue one, what's the biggest issue everyone is talking about right now? Marjorie, why don't you lead off? Well, to me, it's what you just led with, this fighting. It almost feels like everywhere, conflicts um, cropping up. You know, I think the administration has spent years trying to get everyone to focus on China, and that just continues to be really challenging given what's happening around the globe. Um, so I think what people are talking about is these ongoing conflicts and what that's going to mean for the U.S. now and over time. Do you think the administration have, has enough bandwidth to handle all of this? Well, I'm not in the business of giving my opinion, but it certainly looks very challenging. I think that, you know, Ukraine, the pace there has probably um, exceeded what almost anyone would think they could go through in terms of equipment. And so to um, think of managing that and that not even being the number one focus is is pretty daunting. So Jake Sullivan, Tony Blanket, and Sleepless in Washington. God. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't probably be their ideal scenario. I'd say that. OK, Aaron, what do you got? Yeah, it ties into a little bit of what Marjorie said, which is uh, the Israeli Ukraine situations mean supply chain and production issues are going to remain a, you know, a big focus here. Uh, our big focus will remain a big focus. Look, it, this is the type of thing that, you know, Marcus, Marjorie and I and, and certainly Roman, you've written about and talked about incessantly over the course of our careers. But it's also the type of thing that usually we're talking to a fairly small number of people who actually care, right? So things like production levels of shells and, you know, are there enough workers to build things up? And is the industrial base healthy or not? Uh, these were not issues that you really heard top level officials talking about. Certainly not outside the U.S. In Europe, it was something you almost never hear people talk about unless they were specifically an acquisition official. Now, uh, you go to any major defense conference anywhere in the world, and it's, we got to get production up. We got to get the defense industry to do this. How do we make them build more? Why can't we get more ammunition? Uh, these are now the frontline issues. It's because of Israel and Ukraine. To Marjorie's point, the fact that now Israel is a whole new front that's opened up in the terms of global conflicts that the U.S. is taking, you know, has at least once diverted shells meant for Ukraine to Israel. Uh, you know, that just means that this is going to remain a, a pretty big issue. And it's just it's kind of astounding, frankly, to see it become this level of focus from high level leaders. I mean, if you go back to the Munich Security Forum earlier this year, it was something that was a major topic that was covered. You'd never hear discussions of production levels at Munich before this year. It's just a totally different paradigm. No, that's a fair point. And I just I, I wonder, though, uh, if the, the administration uh, is actually has this, has a big enough sense of urgency. 
um, just given how long this stuff takes. Not to be critical, industry is is waiting for the demand signal, which usually means uh, you know cash on a contract to to get moving, uh, and they and they don't really want to put much at risk uh, until they they see that firm demand signal, and and also that it's not just gonna that the tap's gonna turn off in two years or something like that, right? I mean, the the, the major issue is these you know longer term multi years to do a big restock. The the amazing thing is if you think about the Inflation Reduction Act and Build Back Better and, and all the defense spending and the supplementals. I mean, we're in this uh, American manufacturing renaissance and there's nobody to build this stuff. Anyway, like, I mean, it's supply chain, it's labor, it's it's everything. No, I mean, that's a fair point. I think, you know, what you hear governments counter and officials counter is, you know, we want to get things on contract, but we move slowly. We, you know, we can't seem to move very fast. And, you know, if industry wants to see us give them a big cash windflow here, uh, they want to see industry put forth some more stuff. And there's certainly things industry could do. And, and we've heard officials talk about this. It's a balancing act. And, you know, part of the thing here is that this is the perfect storm, right? To your point, you had COVID supply issues. Uh, and that also hit the workforce. There's been an aging workforce issue for a while. Then you suddenly open up the Ukraine conflict. And now you open up another conflict with Israel, which is going to draw from some of the same systems. Ultimately, it's like this this once in a you know certain generation, perhaps you know in a century situation where industry was at a certain point and the demands at a certain point and governments at a certain point with this bureaucracy and kind of can't get everyone to line up. I think certainly the, the administration has, has made it a focus and is trying to do stuff, but I think it's, you know, I don't know if it takes 15 to tango or what's going on here, but it's just a lot of moving parts. And the fact that there's no budget also doesn't help, right? So they can't get some of the stuff going that they hope to get going in October. Sure. Nope. Fair enough. Marcus, what do you got? Well, to build on what my two esteemed colleagues have said, it's, you know, there's no easy button for any of this. And, and the, the particularly to build on what Aaron was talking about with the inflation, supply chain and workforce have been, you know, the big issues for, you know, since before Ukraine, since bef before now, this latest conflict of Israel. It's amazing how, uh, you know, we were hearing so much from folks on the Hill, especially about Taiwan. And now now with with the Israel Hamas war that's popped up, it's, you know, you've Taiwan now has kind of slid into this, you know, third third place. So it seems, and oh, by the way, you know, there's there's still we're, we're still getting uh, messages out of the Pentagon every week or a couple weeks about some sort of action taken in Syria uh, or Iraq against against ISIS, which still continues to permeate. But I think like what you were saying earlier, you know, wh where is this demand signal? It's been it's been two years since you, almost since Ukraine began, and. Every time I'm talking to executives, there's it's the same issues that still persist. You know, it's getting stuff on contract, and then what what's the long term production run? Are we are we or you know you're not going to go build a factory to to build you know 150 missiles or who who knows what? You need to know what what the long term answer is. It'll be really interesting to see. You know, have, I think we're going on close to a year of stuff like this, a joint produ uh, production excel accelerator um, acceleration cell that. Uh, build a plant in the Pentagon acquisition shop set up, you know, what is, we're getting about a year. Like I said, I think it was around March last year when this, uh, at least carry March 23, when this was announced, what, what, is, what is that told you? What does it yield it? And uh, other thing is just supply chain and whether or not the Pentagon is going to be willing to spend more to have backup suppliers for things. You know, are, are you, go, are you going, you know, we, we constantly hear, you know, if one mom and pop shop three years ago, it was if, you know, somebody got COVID and the shop shut down. You know, then then what? Now it's you know, can they get their, can they get workers? Period. Can they you know, can they get their the raw materials that they need? So you know, what what's gonna what's gonna be the end game there? And I know Aaron touched on it at the very end, but the but the budget now it's like 
that that's all going to come to a head. And none of us have talked about, I guess, you know, the train wreck that is Congress and whether or not they're going to be able to, you know, pass anything. And well, how 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 lasting is that? Whatever they pass is, you know, we're going to get a budget for by the time they pass it. If they pass it by Jan- by January, so we have a budget for eight months. Then what? Right. No, I I think that's a great point. And uh, and and from my perspective, the other issue is, you know, a lot of time from a from a Wall Street perspective, it's you know what the top line revenue growth is for companies, but you know what even if the even if the defense budget went up a hundred billion dollars, what could they actually build and deliver? Can you build more f thirty fives? Can you build more uh, you know Virginia class? Can you, I mean, everybody's maxed out. So it doesn't really matter what the budget is because they can only grow at three to four percent anyway. They can't absorb all of this. And I think that you know maybe there's alternative production you know facilities or you know bringing in new shipyards or looking for other suppliers or using Defense Production Act. but uh, you know, I just, I, I would say from, you know, a criticism that I hear and something that I believe is, you know, for a, for an administration that has a lot of things, you know, a, you know, a, a lot of flashpoints all around the world, there's not that sense of urgency that we really need to be in that over, overcorrecting environment that we really need to get uh, very serious, very fast um, because the, you know, munition stockpiles are getting lower and, and you're facing, you know, and, and really, I think Ukraine and Russia has shown that warfare is different. Uh, you know, war, you know, nation state warfare against two industrialized opponents is a hell of a lot different than people uh, have thought about over the last, thir- you know, three or four decades. I was just going to say that urgency is a challenging thing for contractors and for government. You know, that's just not what they're built to do. Like the government is is built to check the boxes in a procurement. I mean, if you look back over years, you think about, you know, MRAP, vehicles, one of the fastest procurements of all time, you know, that was something where they let there be five designs. They were like, you know, doing things really differently. And that's not really going to work in the scenario that we're in, in terms of what needs to be produced. So there are some real challenges and it's choices that were made over years that led us to this point, you know, in terms of shrinking the defense industry and, and um, you know, trying not to pay for capacity that they didn't think was needed. So it's, I would just say, you know, I don't want to necessarily be the defender here um, of of the administration, but I guess what I would say is that it's not easy to reverse that. It's very challenging whether you feel that sense of urgency or or not. Yeah, no, and I think that's fair. I mean, if you look, you know, historically, I mean, we probably had this, you know, Vietnam, maybe Korea, yeah, World War II for sure, right? But I mean, zero to sixty spike in demand over a short period of time, and it was really an all hands effort to kind of. Uh, to kind of do that. You know what a commercial company would do is like go outsource it to somebody, right? You know, overseas. Obviously, we're not going to say, hey, here's the specs for the ammo that we need. You know, random Chinese company, do you want to build this for us? You know, as you said, the capacity is is what it is in the U.S. And, you know, we're learning about facilities, like to Marcus's point, we're learning about facilities that I didn't even really know existed. And some of these are really, it's not just industry, right? It's government-owned facilities um, like Waterville in New York. We sent a reporter there. We had an, an interesting story come out of it. But you know, some of these are really older facilities that uh, we haven't, we just haven't had the capacity and the options in term, are, are limited in terms of like in comparison to, you know, what Wall Street might expect from a commercial tech company. Marcus, you're up. One of the things I think that's hurt the defense industry actually coming into this is that you know they're doing a great job right now telling the stories of the people of the people at you know in Camden, Camden, Arkansas, who are you know making javelins and elsewhere around the country. But for the past, you know, I would argue, especially during the during the ISIS uh, campaign, they were very uh, 
shy about all of these factories, where they were. They pulled a lot of the data, and I can point to specific companies, and they pulled a lot of the fact sheets about the factories that did this off their websites because they were afraid of people at the factories being targeted. And, I, and I, you know, I'm not going to dispute, dispute that and say it was the wrong thing to do, but they did it nonetheless. And then there, there was, and there, you know, now all of a sudden it's a complete reversal. It's, you know, we get, we need to talk about these people. We need to talk about how we need people to, you know, backfill folks and, uh, you know, expand production so we can, we can ramp up, uh, ramp up, uh, things and, you know, have two, three shifts of building things like javelins. Just to Marjorie's point about, you know, we're, we're not going to go ahead and build these things in China, um, as much as that, you know, would probably be delightful for Beijing, but we could go ahead and build these things in the UK in Belgium, in any sorts of NATO countries, in Australia. And that's something that I think you're starting to hear industry talking more about. I mean, I really noticed this uh, at uh, the Paris Air Show when you talk to execs from, you know, munitions firms, you know, Raytheon comes to mind where they were very openly saying, yeah, we're looking at co-production. We think that's going to be the way that we can expand and that, you know, one helps us get into some other markets potentially, right? If something's built in your home backyard, you're more likely to buy it. But also, you know, to the point, there's no workforce in the U.S. for this. There just isn't. And this has been an issue that, you know, you can go back five, 10 years and the Pentagon reports are saying we're concerned about aging workforce. If you want to speed these things up, you, even if industry is willing to go ahead and build brand new facilities rapidly over the next year, they wouldn't have the people necessarily to actually build these things up. So I think that's something you're going to see a lot of going forward is the kind of co-production and kind of working internationally. I don't know, Marcus, if you you agree with that or not, but it's something that, you know, like I say, at Paris, I certainly heard a lot about. No, 100%. I totally agree with you. I, that was, I was going to actually m- mention that earlier in that we uh, you're starting to see the companies make these arrangements to co-produce. If I recall, Lockheed just had one a few months ago in Poland, and I'm blanking on what it was for, if it was for maybe Javelin. But, you know, whether or not there's actually these things actually come to fruition, you know, it is Lockheed going to let MBDA build Hellfires? You know, probably not. But 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 you know, it just it depends. You know, or will they be incentivized to do something something like this? And if you know, uh, if it hits the fan, are they going to be forced to do something like this? All right, great. Let's change gears. Issue two. Uh, so we're into the year end sprint. Uh, we've got, uh, as Marcus alluded to, funding nonsense, chicanery to uh, to tackle. We've got the NDAA. We've got emergency supplemental. Uh, we've got big programs out there. What's uh, what? What, in your opinion, is the next big thing on everybody's mind? What's uh, what's going to be the news flow over the next couple of weeks? Uh, we'll go with Aaron to lead off this time. So for me, it's the. I mean, broadly, the election. Is going to take over 2024. And I think in our world, a big issue is going to be the question of uh, retrenchment from the world, right? Uh, Biden's support for Ukraine uh, is incredibly unpopular on the right. We've seen them having trouble getting uh, any money through Congress right now on, for Ukraine. His support for Israel is broadly unpopular with the left. We're seeing that, you know, tanking his poll numbers among Democrats. And Trump out and out says he'll quit alliances and he doesn't see the point of being the world's policeman and being involved in foreign affairs. So, if 2024 is going to be a year where everything is dominated by the presidential election, which it will because it always is, this is going to be, I think, the biggest question that you know, is going to be dealt with in our industry. Because to the point uh, we were just talking about, if the U.S. is backing off international engagement, that's going to hurt you know, production levels of its you know, equipment potentially. You know, potentially could see the 
the defense budget cut. That seems kind of crazy with the Republican administration, but it, it seems also entirely possible. And I think that, you know, you're going to see then a push maybe from some European countries as they come to grips with the fact that you know, Trump may be coming back to power, uh, that they're going to have to figure out ways to increase domestically their spends or getting back to Marjorie's first point, just cut back its support for Ukraine and some of the other conflicts. And that'll obviously have a major geopolitical impact as well. So to me, this is just the biggest question for defense security topics over the next year is going to be what happens after we see the outcome of the election come November. Marcus, you want to keep rolling with that? No, I, I wholly agree with what Aaron said. I, I'll, I'll point out a couple of other things that um, obviously the budget stuff that I mentioned earlier, I think will continue to be the dominating, uh, one of the dominating things. I, I think it'll be also interesting to see who in the administration leaves over the next, uh, between now and the election. Usually Thanksgiving of the year before is the time when everyone has to submit their resignations or you're saying, I'm riding it out till the end. You know, we've had this issue of confirmations and particularly with uh, generals uh, and getting promoted and admirals getting promoted. Is, is that a factor in people staying, uh, political staying? I, I I don't know. What Aaron said about Ukraine, I, I 100%, I 100% agree with, you know, what, what, what ends up happening, you know, does the money run out and what kind of message does that send? That then will all be debated in real time within the presidential election. I think we'll get a good barometer of where Republicans stand uh, in the you know, n- near future at the Reagan National Defense Forum that's coming up. You know, the, the, there's that's, that's typically a place, you know, where f- folks are, you know, you, you get the NATSEC elite, if you will, uh, and you get a bipartisan group. That, that bipartisan group, though, tends to have, you know, similar, very, very similar views on defense spending and incre- increasing it or at least keeping it, you know, rising with the rate, rate uh, rates of inflation and whatnot. This this, this increasing uh, national sentiment that's going against funding for Ukraine and whether or not uh, you're, you're going to continue it, I think you'll probably, we'll probably hear something soon when when, uh, when leaders meet there in the coming days. Marjorie. Yeah, I'm going to sound like I uh, just am, you know, adding on to what they said, but I swear I had it written down on my sheet. The presidential election is is what people should be talking about. I mean, the, the ramifications, I think I don't I don't need to add too much to what Aaron and Marcus have said, but they're really significant. I mean, for Ukraine, for Israel, um, I agree for the defense budget. I, I think there's a growing wing of the Republican Party in Congress. And I think you hear it some in the primaries that just has a lot of skepticism about how defense spending is being used, how defense funding is is being used. You know, I think that uh, if President, former President Trump were to come back, um, I think he would have a different perspective. I mean, what he's talking about now is different than, you know, how he uh, handled the Defense Department when he was president. So, yeah, I think that it would be just, you know, a a wildly different um, approach than we're seeing right now. So the one thing I would say, and we we sort of, well, you all subtly danced around the issue, or maybe not so subtly, the idea that a President Trump and a Republican Congress, because in my scenario book, it, right, it, he gets a Republican Congress to go with it. The House expands its margin. The Senate flips. You, you, know, you can use reconciliation to do all kinds of monkey business. But that Ukraine spending would go down. You, you could actually have a net year-over-year reduction in defense spending, and you want to cut overall discretionary spending. So if you're going to cut non-defense, they're happy to sacrifice defense. Trump already rebuilt the military. Generals, these generals and admirals are some of the dumbest people he's ever met. 
Uh, you know, he wants Wolf Millie thrown into jail. Uh, he's definitely not the pro-military guy with Mad Dog Mattis he was, uh, you know, six or seven years ago. I'll, I'll say that you guys don't don't have to agree. I will say that the one issue that I think the next big topic, and I'll just throw this out there, and there's a bunch, you guys have all made great points, but I want to see the fiscal 25 budget. And what I mean by that is... All of these services are talking about new warfighting strategies. I'll use the transformation word just because it's lazy, but uh, all these shifting priorities uh, and and where how does that all shake out uh, to me? And you know, obviously from a company uh, investor perspective, does that thematically continue to play out? And the one thing that I've seen uh, is that you know the budget. Tracking the budget year over year is pretty boring, right? It's like just you don't see a lot of big changes. But when you take a fit up from beginning to end year one versus year five, that's where you see big changes, right? How much is, you know, how much is space going to change? The the revolution in both strategic and tactical use of unmanned commercial drones uh, that we've seen in Ukraine. Um, you know, all those things, uh, I think it'll be, I think the fiscal 25 budget be interesting to see how this administration puts its stamp on that. I will throw in my sleeper on, on, uh, retirements. We'll see. I think it's unlikely, but there's a shot. SecDef retires, Catholics nominated, confirmed first female secretary of defense in the final, final year. You're shaking your head, Marcus. Aaron's got the floor and then we'll go to you. Go. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just. I'll jump Marcus a little bit here. I, I see zero chance that uh, anybody's getting confirmed in the next year on the political side. Even if they break Tuberville's uh, blockade there, it's going to be just for the uniform folks. The politicals are going nowhere, especially a SECDAS in an election year. I, I don't think you're wrong that if uh, there is a second Biden administration, you might see Austin retire and, and Hicks take over. Um, or at least be nominated to do so. But uh, I just don't see that happening next year. I'll just throw a couple of quick other just small ones out there playing off what you said, Roman. In the budget, AI and whether there's actual investment for the Pentagon or it's just a another buzzword the same way that uh, you heard a lot of talk about the metaverse last year. Mark's is shaking his hand at me because I stole his stuff, which is the problem with having three of us on is you're going to get a lot of uh, similar thoughts. Um, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you say... You just threw out metaverse. Were you trying to get an Aaron metaverse in there? Is that, is that <laughs> so Lloyd to do name drop or what? A fun fact is that apparently uh, my managing editor uh, at Breaking Defense had secretly purchased a uh, website called the metaverse, spelled like my last name, and was planning a whole uh, troll of me with it, but then forgot about it and it laughs and he doesn't feel like paying to re-up it. So uh, yeah, huh. this is the kind of hard work you get from the Defense Press Corps in Washington. Sorry, Marjorie actually works. Marcus and I mostly just uh, swoon around. You know, just one of the things on Congress, because again, we do kind of dance around it. And I'm going to actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop because Marcus is going to throw something at the camera. Marcus, you want to talk about Congress? No, I want to talk about commercial technology. I'll tell you, Eric, anything else you wanted to add on that uh, before you defer to him? Yeah, I would say so just on Congress, you know, the we're dancing around it a little bit, but the question of whether Congress can function at all in the next year, I think, is a very real one. Um, we're not just talking about the, the Tuberville situation, but in an election year, as I said earlier, everything gets about the election. And that means everyone in Congress is going to be using Congress as tools to try to uh, either hurt Biden or hurt you know the other candidates. And I think that means, you know, look, Roman, you mentioned the 25 budget. Are we going to get a budget that matters or is there going to be just a CR for the rest of the year because you can't get everyone to agree on anything? 
I, I'm just very skeptical that we're going to get really anything of substance out of Congress, including, frankly, funding at this point. I mean, they kicked the can to February 2nd, I believe it is. And at that point, they're going to have to come back and figure out what to do. And, you know, it's the easiest thing is to say, all right, we're going to do a CR for another three months and figure it out down the road. And then you're into May and you're already through most of the primaries. Uh, you're not going to come together and say, OK, now we're going to work together to get proper appropriations passed. At that point, you're just going to kick it until uh, the next you know, after the election, honestly. Um, so, you know, we always hear from analysts and, and people in the Pentagon how dangerous a full year CR would be. Uh, we might get to actually find out. Marjorie? Yeah, I uh, I put down for what will they be talking about is congressional dysfunction, possibility of a shutdown. I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with an election year, I suppose, although not always, but um, we shouldn't be surprised. And, you know, I, I think Aaron's right. It's it, it's just the easiest option and becomes not an unlikely one. I still don't think that, you know, a shutdown is impossible. I think that there's a lot of wild cards here and hasn't been that long since we've seen it. They seem to be coming more common. So, you know, I think that that just, as Aaron said, it's DOD says it's very damaging. Uh, and it, the longer it goes on, the more damaging it is. And I think there's certainly a chance that it could go on for quite some time. And, you know, I think we come back to the Wall Street perspective, in that perspective, there's just that's just a lot of uncertainty, right? And it's a lot of um, kind of wait and see and don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Marcus, do you want to follow up those comments on uh, commercial tech? We got you. Uh, I, I think that if Trump does get elected again, I think, I think the one thing that's kind of, you know, permeated and gone from administration to administration is, is this need to, for the Defense Department and the military to adopt commercial commercial tech and whether or not, you know, it, it seems like that is at the point of getting institution is, you know, getting ins has been institutionalized, if you will, uh, either be through DIU or just companies uh, as a whole these days making their partnerships with com with with commercial tech and actually what that yields you know do do all these 5G partnerships if you will do they all do they all go somewhere for me one of the things is still kind of seeing who's going to be the next you know Andrew, uh, SpaceX or uh, Palantir is it Anderol is it you know what what happens with a lot of these very high profile uh, startups Hermes Ursa Major Saronic they they're all doing really neat uh, and from what the you know military folks tell us, very you know stuff that they're very interested in, you know, does does any of that get any traction? If and to tie it all together to everything we spoke about earlier, you have a lot of these firms, the startups built doing things that are actually really would be applicable to Ukraine or to China. Where, where does the rubber does the rubber finally meet the road there with with, uh, with them, uh, regardless of who gets regardless of who gets elected? So we'll see. Great. All right. We're going to move into our last round. Issue three. What's your sleeper issue or something that people should be talking about that they aren't right now? I will lead off. I'm going to go with uh, the second Thomas Shoal in the South China Sea with the Philippines, this uh, uh, China-Philippine standoff um, that uh, has seen a U.S.-Japanese uh, carrier battle group operating uh, near a Chinese carrier battle group, a sort of manufactured crisis while everything else is going on in the world, coming on the heels of an APEC feel-good session that really didn't change much in my mind in the bilateral relationship, uh, and that if uh, China really wanted to twist things going into the election, and you're thinking about who do you have better luck with over the next uh, sort of four years, would you rather see Biden elected or Xi elected? How do you, how do you put pressure on 
I think that's that's the other thing that kind of bothers me is uh, I think globally we've got uh, Europe, the Middle East going bonkers right now, and uh, I think there's serious stuff going on in Asia that we d- we just don't pay attention to because it's it's not on the news unless they want it on the news. So not to be conspiratorial, but uh, I, I think there is some uh, some some bigger stuff going on that uh, in that uh, U.S. China head to head. All right, who's up next? What should people be thinking about? Well, I jumped the gun and shared that I, I think it's congressional dysfunction. I think that the, you know, national security experts want it to just be about national security, but this is politics are part of it, you know, and especially when we're heading into an election year and we've got a deeply divided Congress. And, you know, I think Marcus uh, or I, mean, I guess Aaron touched on sort of the maybe surprise that a Republican administration potentially with a Republican Congress could lead to defense budget cuts. It's not, you know, um, the maybe the GOP that we think of from the 90s or something, you know, this is um, a very different approach. And I think that the U.S. standing in the world and our national security standing would be very different um, if the uh, election goes a certain way and if Congress gets completely stalled out for the rest of the year from now, essentially. Sure. Aaron? Uh, so Marcus mentioned we're recording this a couple of days before the Reagan National Defense Forum. Um, and one of the things they do every year at the Reagan is they release this national survey that they do on defense issues, polling the American public. You know, one of the things that they always pull on is views of the American military. And, you know, what was the the one rule of American political society uh, for, you know, certainly our entire lifetimes and decades going back? It's that no matter what, the military is viewed positively, right? Everyone loves the military. The forum's polling the last couple of years has seen that's changing. Uh, you know, it's directly tied to uh, some of the ways that the Trump administration tied itself to the military politically, um, and that started to impact views. And, you know, certainly it's continued on. Uh, we've seen, you know, a number of Republicans upset with then-Chairman Mark Milley where promise he's made. You know, there is a declining trust in the American military. That's going to have real impact, you know, not just in terms of how the public views it, but that it packs recruitment, which the military has been sounding the alarm for the last couple of years that they're having real recruitment issues. Well, if people don't trust the military and view it as a nonpartisan, trusted organization, they're going to be less likely to recruit there. It potentially impacts the ability to sell the American public a white needs to spend, you know, almost $900 billion on defense if they don't feel they trust the Pentagon to spend that money fairly and wisely. And, you know, it impacts also the elections. Again, come back to that. If you're going to see it, politicians who are trying to tie themselves to the military. Uh, We've seen some reporting this week about Trump's plans to expand the use of the military domestically uh, if elected. That's also going to have an impact on all this. So, you know, the three of us tend to be, as reporters, our beats have traditionally been more on the strategy, acquisition, technology, business side of things. And, you know, in some regards, we tend to separate out, uh, for instance, to Marjorie's excellent colleagues at Military Times, some of the personnel recruitment issue, things like that. I don't think that we're going to be able to ignore that in 2024. I think that's going to be a real issue that's going to come up in a number of ways. And I don't think we are prepared to understand exactly how uh, the ramifications of that are going to play out long term. That's great. Marcus, what do you got? Everything that both Marjorie and Aaron said, I think are pretty spot on. I think that, you know, things that could happen in the next year, we could see the war in Ukraine end. We could certainly see the Israel Hamas, you know, the the broader war that's going on that now, the scale down and whatever you want to say, call it, but which could then reshape a ton, 
you know, if if the, if the war in Ukraine ends, then you know, do all these all these initiatives to you know uh, do co-production to increase manufacturing for things. How much, you know, when you have like we were saying, a, a Republican Congress that doesn't, you know, isn't. I think when the three of us started doing this, I mean, we can never imagine a day when when Republicans would be against increasing defense spending. That seemed to be like you know like number one thing on the on the list uh, when when you get sworn in is you need to favor increasing defense spending. You know, if if those if those conflicts end, then then what? I mean, t- Taiwan, you still have the Taiwan issue, but again, if they want to cut overall spending, then what? I think that the budget stuff still continues to, uh, you know, th- that that'll forever. I think be be an issue and then maybe it's because it's near and dear because you know the three of us have been doing been doing this 20-ish years but i think one of the other big things that uh to keep an eye out for is AUKUS and what happens in you know what what happens to AUKUS if there is a president trump it's 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 just going to be so difficult to build so it's so difficult to increase submarine production right now just for the u.s um it's incredibly difficult to add more submarines in for for an for an ally and you know, it's 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 amazing what they you know what they want to do, and it just doesn't seem like they're at a point yet where, you know, they're not actually building submarines in Australia. They're not building parts. They're not doing anything. So, it, it seems like it could be a very easy thing to keep or cut because, you know, there's no metal being bent in, in you know, in in Australia yet, uh, or even in, in in the UK for Australia. So, Aaron, go ahead. I see you with your hand up. I just want to jump in because that's a great point about AUKUS and just the fact that, you know, to Roman, to your point about how we got to keep eyes in the Pacific, um, even though, you know, this is the up-tenth time we U.S. has announced it's pivoting the Pacific and then gotten dragged back into Europe and the Middle <laughs> East. You know, as, as the saying goes, it's a tradition unlike any other. But on AUKUS, you know, Marx is absolutely right with everything he's saying uh, from the U.S. perspective. You know, if the U.S. says, eh, this just isn't really worth it or we have to prioritize differently, we're going to scale back or stop AUKUS. The Australians, this is their single biggest industrial project ever. Not defense, industrial. The only thing they compare it to is this giant dam building project they did in the 50s, which transformed the country. So if the U.S. says, oh, I don't know, we can't really uh, do this anymore. We're going to scale back. We're only going to do a couple of submarines. That's going to have gigantic repercussions in Australia, this key ally that we're trying to build up. Um, so nothing Mark is saying is wrong. It's just, you know, there's going to be follow-on effects beyond just kind of our, again, kind of more U.S.-centric defense focus. It's just, it's fascinating if something goes astray with AUKUS, what the impacts could be. Fair enough. Now, very good point. And and I think the point that everyone has made is that uh, everyone, uh, both in the U.S. and uh, and abroad, is going to be paying attention to those polls, uh, the presidential polls and trying to gain theory what that impact is going to be like and uh, you know what what the day after effect will be uh, depending on which administration or, or, or which guy wins the uh, the White House um, assuming they are the nominees for their respective parties which is still is still outside chance we'll, we'll see but that's that's for another time. Well, that's great. Thank you, everyone. We're out of time for our panel. Now we're going to shift gears and go to our focused discussion on fiscal 24 budget scenarios. I'm joined by retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Punaro. Arnold is the CEO of the Punaro Group. He's also chairman of the Secretary of Defense's Reserve Forces Policy Board and a member of the Defense Business Board. He's been an executive vice president at SAIC and has also served as the staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee Arnold, it's great to see you. Thank you for doing this. Let's try to get this mess sorted out. 
issue one, where are we at on the CR and what's the timeline look like for the next few weeks? Well, Roman, privileged to be with you. Congress is finally back in town, but obviously, like you said, they've got a lot of messes to clean up. They've only got about 20 days before they have to leave for their Christmas break, and they haven't worked out any of the control totals for the 12 appropriation bills, so they're going to try to make as much progress as they can on those uh, during this short period before the Christmas break. Right now, the CR on the, the non-controversial appropriation bills runs till January 19, 2024, and then on the bigger ones, including defense, February 2, 2024. But to even get started, the House and Senate have hardly passed any of the appropriation bills. So they've got to kind of pass those, but they've got to understand what are the totals going to be for the various bills, because there's big differences between the House allocations and the Senate allocations. So do we think there's anything going on behind closed doors? How, how close, how far, uh, you know, usually appropriators would sort this, uh, would sort all this out, but, but they're not driving the train, right? I would say that because of the Thanksgiving holidays and, and other activities, I don't think there's been a lot of behind the scenes going on. Now both sides are back in town. The speaker is giving very optimistic uh, signals about getting things worked out, including on the supplemental uh, for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and border security. So they're back in town. So they'll start talking uh, Turkey. They just had Turkey Day. They'll start talking Turkey on these totals. But again, they're going to spend the next couple of weeks working out the mechanics on, on the numbers, how they're going to pass the bills, the ones they can already go to conference. The speaker has made it very clear there aren't going to be any more continuing resolutions, so the pressure is on. Now, I do want to just jump in. You've been in this town a while, uh, even though you're a young man. Uh, laddered CR, did you have that on your bingo card? You know, never had that on our bingo card, and uh, obviously uh, it's what the Congress decided to do. You and I have talked about this many times over the years. Congress can act as quickly or as slowly as they want to, and they can do almost anything they want to do when they do it. Sure enough, sure. Uh, all right, issue two, where are we at on DOD spending levels? What's your base case? Obviously, the uh, uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act sets the level at the, at the 24 budget request. But we've got this uh, nasty issue of a negative one sequester hanging out after January 1 and then going into effect. That that creates some churn here as to what that means for the department and potentially spend rates, right? How, how do we think about that? Well, but we already need to understand we've been operated at a lower level since 1 October. We've been in a continued resolution for defense at fiscal 23 levels. DOD is losing about $2 billion a month in purchasing power, not covering inflation. And that's going to run through about uh, December and January. So that total keeps going up. They also can't start any new programs. They can't increase rates. They can't do multi-years for the munitions they want for Ukraine and Israel. I, some of the service secretaries have said very publicly there's billions of dollars in new starts that they can't get underway. So the bottom line is uh, defense is losing ground every day. If we went to the worst case for defense, which is, and by the way, the penalty will be assessed on 1 January. All 12 appropriation bills will not have passed on 1 January 2024. The 1% penalty will be assessed. It doesn't actually get implemented till April 30th. Um, if that happened, DOD would be losing about $36 billion. So these numbers are very grim in terms of what happens if it doesn't all get worked out. But again, DOD is losing ground every day. Now, you've talked about this before uh, at, at, at our events and, at, and in some published stuff recently, but... But what does that mean also in terms of a, a sequester to DOD? Because you're going to 
you're going to uh, protect the uh, personnel accounts, right? And you're going to probably want to protect the the O and M. So it does it fall disproportionately on investment, or how does that play out? Roman, it does fall disproportionately on investment. It's not going to be like the FY13 sequester, which was a 10% cut in every program, project, and activities. And as bad as that was, um, it, it was it was a peanut butter spread. With this one starting on 1 January, the Office of Management Budget working with the Department of Defense is going to slow down what we call the apportionment because they don't know what the final number is going to be. They're not going to want to have to try to cut that huge amount of money from 1 May to 1 October. And so they're going to slow down uh, obligations and outlays. They're going to protect military personnel. They've been burning O&M operations and maintenance at the cyclical rate, and that's tied to readiness. So the cuts are going to all basically fall on the investment R&D procurement and military construction, which is primarily the accounts that uh, our industry focuses on. Right. So and so again, just just to be clear on this, and I, and I'm not sure whether this will affect other departments and agencies, right? Because the rest of the government has been running at a fiscal 23 CR rate. If they got sequestered down to negative one, they, they've already spent too much, right? Through the balance of the, if we're through the, you know. I mean, Roman, this is what's so silly about this deal that they cut in that is the 1% penalty um, is only a $7 billion cut for every other government agency. So, you know, there's 30 or 40 of those. So that's $7 billion spread out over all of them. They won't even know they've been cut. Whereas defense, it's all in the Department of Defense. Uh, the 1% against FY23 is $9 billion, but because of the debt deal allowed the increase of $26 billion, that's how you come up with the loss of $36 billion. So it's it's much more devastating on defense than it is on the domestic federal civil agencies. They're not even going to feel the cut because $7 billion spread out over all those agencies is, is uh, you know, chump change. Right. Budget dust, as they sometimes say. Correct. All right. Well, so uh, we're, we're working at probes. Uh, it's going to be a soup sandwich for a couple of weeks, probably a couple of months. Issue three, we've got uh, an emergency supplemental pending as well as NDAA, which is near and dear to your heart. What's the outlook for those? And and really, are they a bellwether for any sort of spirit of bipartisanship deal making, maybe to see how well Speaker Johnson can can navigate the uh, navigate the swamp? Roman, I think both of them will be a bellwether, and I think both of them, I'm a lot more optimistic about the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. The bipartisan leadership of both committees is very bullish about this. They're pretty much done. They'll probably have something to report out at the after they get back from the Reagan Forum in early December. Uh, it doesn't have any money in it, so you know it's not, it's not the knockdown, drag-out debt deal thing, but I think you'll see uh, NDAA at the FY24 requested level in the debt deal, it's an authorization. And I know they are working out all what I call the poison pills uh, that, you know, the administration wouldn't support and the Senate wouldn't support. So I'm very optimistic about the NDAA. Also, I think they're going to move the supplemental. And, and they're going to move the supplemental because uh, there's a majority vote in the House and Senate, bipartisan, for more money for Ukraine, money for Israel, money for Taiwan, and... Uh, the Republicans are going to demand in the Senate, and I think they'll get something worked out, some very stringent provisions related to the border. Um, you can't have national security if you don't protect your border. This will be some policy provisions. It'll be some resources. It might even include some things that, that people have been opposed to in the past, maybe building some of the border wall. But that's the price that the administration is going to have to pay to get the needed money for Ukraine and for Israel and Taiwan. 
So I think both the NDAA, the NDAA will be pretty smooth, a pretty smooth pass. The supplemental could be kind of rocky, but I think in the final analysis it gets done. But it all is going to have to be on a bipartisan basis. Nothing's going to pass either now or next year if it doesn't pass on a bipartisan basis. Now, I, I got to ask, let's let's dig in on each one of those real quick. Uh, you've got the NDAA has some uh, abortion-related provisions in it, some diversity, equity, inclusion provisions that seem to be pretty important to the right, uh, would seem to be in the speaker's wheelhouse. Uh, if you do, you know, sort of write those out of the conference bill, uh, is is that going to jeopardize him with his right flank? Well, I would say I would say it depends on the provision. I think everybody understood from day one the abortion the abortion bill would come out, and I had to deal with those when I was staff director, even back in those days. I think some of the other social issues they're going to have to compromise. So I think both sides will will not get a hundred percent. Uh, so I think there will be in the speaker, you know, was a former member of the House Armed Services Committee. He gets it. So I'm I, again, I'm not really worried about the NDAA and I don't think the NDAA will put his speakership at risk. And again, on the supplemental, the administration is going to have to basically bite the bullet on some very onerous border provisions to get the other things that they want in Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Right. And to that side of it, um, you know, the White House is probably being dragged a little willingly, right? Because um, immigration policy and uh, in, in, you know, uh, Democrat-controlled cities and states has has been an issue, uh, and, and it's a risk for the Biden administration. And, and so the, the Republicans actually are probably forcing some stuff that takes it off the plate, uh, takes it off the, you know, the table for next year as an election uh, issue. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be silently clapping behind their backs, including Democrats that in tough tough red state races to get this fixed so and and again it's needed i mean you can't have a strong national defense if your borders are not secure right let me ask you this just the one you know the the administration request is about 60 billion in change for ukraine uh but not all that is military needs some of that is economic humanitarian um do you think that all goes as is i mean to me it you know there is this push to maybe tweak it down downsize it a little bit wouldn't affect the defense related provisions but i think it's more the economic development and, and maybe that's something that it sounds like the republicans want to leave it up to the europeans to do that i mean they're 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 going to have to compromise on all the all the provisions which is always the case i mean you never get this administrations never get 100 percent of what they ask for i don't care whether it's a democratic administration republican administration Congress has the power of the purse. They get to make the final decisions. That's the way the Constitution set it up. So there'll be some of the things. There'll be greater scrutiny. There'll be greater security um, of the funds, things of that nature. So there'll be there'll be some strings attached, frankly, on all four areas. Yeah, right, right. And I think the Republicans have asked. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's a provision in either the NDAA or the approach bill for a, a special inspector general for the Ukraine funds and things like that to kind of— no. Audit. No, I mean, I mean, look, you want good supervision and oversight of taxpayer funds. Right, right, right. All right. Uh, well, you've got me feeling optimistic a little bit, but so let's 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 best case this and worst case this. Uh, let's let's go with your best case. What do we uh, we we get everything on the best case? And that, you know, and I've said facetiously, we don't know at Christmas if we're going to get sugar plums or coal in our stockings and. Sugar plum case would be no shutdowns. They get the appro all 12 appropriation bills passed by April 30th at the debt at the reasonable levels. And and we, you know, we move forward. Um, so that that's the best case, you know, whether or not 
I don't know that I'm that optimistic about the best case. The worst case, obviously, would be a short shutdown followed by the penalty being assessed, the appropriation bills not passing, a year-long CR for defense, which is typically what we've argued over the years is one of our worst cases. And it could be something in between. So it could be the best case, the worst case, or something in between. I don't think we're really going to know that until uh, early into next year. Early into, okay. And and let's go two sort of derivative options. One is the Senate did actually have a little more money uh, than the House, the, the Senate appropriators, right? Four, I think it was $14 billion if memory serves, eight for defense and six for non-defense. You think you think any of that money get? I mean, is that dead? Was that posturing right? I mean, that the Senate went high, the House went low, uh, so we're going to meet at the middle. We'll just take the FRA and run with it. Well, no, I think I think the problem is the domestic appropriation. So the Democrats aren't going to agree to higher levels for defense in the final analysis if they don't get what they need on the domestic side. So that's why these allocations are so important, and they've got to sit down and work out what we, you and I, know technically call the 602B allocation. So. You know, yes, we we need more money for defense. We need to get more bang for the buck for the dollars we spend. But but whether or not that's possible in this framework that we're talking about, I mean, again, the speaker is going to have to walk away from the Freedom Caucus. He's going to have to walk away from 50 to 60 Republican votes that are never going to vote for any deal. They're never going to vote. They want the domestic appropriation bills cut way back to the FY22 levels. If that means defense doesn't get what they want, they don't care. So if the speaker is not willing to allow these four bills that we talked about, NDAA, supplemental, and appropriations to pass on a bipartisan basis, then we are going to be dealing with the worst case. That's just the bottom line. But you're telling me there's a chance. But you're telling me there's a chance. Well, dumb and dumber, <laughs> you know, it won't work out in the end. So I guess, I guess <laughs> what the, the, the thing was like, yeah, there's only one. You, you know, one in a million. Well, you're telling me exactly, exactly. Hope, hope springs eternal. I mean, I I think that the world is in flames. We're in a very difficult, unpredictable situation. We're in an upcoming political battle, and I think both sides realize that they've got to show that they can govern and they can get the people's work done. So I think that would be an incentive. Again, though, there are going to be 50 to 60 Republican sure. votes in the House that are never going to support any of this. If the speaker's not willing to walk away from that, uh, we're going to be we're going to be in a meltdown. Right. And look, this is this is the only uh, the only stuff that needs to get done before the you know through through the rest of this uh, this Congress before they start campaigning for re-election next year, right? I mean, you, you, you don't want to uh, you, you want to get this done the supplemental, you want to get the appropriations bills done, and that's really the must pass. And the NDA, right? And the, the other problem, the other problem with the one percent is it carries through the fit up, and so that that takes out a couple of hundred billion dollars out of defense at the penalty level. So it's, it's a very devastating cut to defense. Thank you very much, Arnold. That was great. We really appreciate your insights. That's going to do it for this time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We look forward to talking with you again. <laughs> <laughs>